Scripture reading this morning, um, I'll be in Psalm 37, verses 7 to 11. Psalm 37. Beginning verse 7. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself of Him who prospers in His way because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land, and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do again just thank you that we can gather together in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, without fear and, Lord, in expectation, knowing that your heart for us is to teach us, guide us, and lead us into all that is true and good. And so we pray that through your word that you would again just speak to us, God, strengthen our hearts in the faith that we would stand with you and walk with you in humility and integrity of heart. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've been looking at the book of Esther, and we're going to continue this morning with Esther, beginning in chapter 7, actually chapter 8, I'm sorry. But I've read the last two Sundays from Psalm 37. It's one of my favorite psalms because um, it, we live, every generation of believer has lived in a time when there were wicked that were prospering. And when the, sometimes when the wicked is focusing his attention on the righteous. And this is a great psalm of encouragement that tells us that God is in control and that when the day is finally done, he's going to turn the schemes of the wicked against themselves and the righteous shall prosper. He's not talking about all that happening at this time in our earthly lifetime, but in the end, God will rule. Um, He will conquer all evil and the righteous will stand rewarded with him. And Esther is a great picture of that. And so in chapter 8 of Esther, we come now to um, um, Haman has, um, his evil intent has been thwarted, and all the wealth and power and position of Haman has been bestowed upon Mordecai, his enemy. Only God could do that. Mordecai hasn't lifted a finger, he hasn't had to defend himself, Um, But God has exalted this man. And so in chapter 8, it says, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her, the cousin who has raised her. And the king took off his signet ring, which had been taken away from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. This is a miracle. Only God could have done this. And so now the story moves to um, how are the Jews yet going to be protected and defended from the law that has already been put into place? And so in, cha- in verse 3 of chapter 8, Esther recognizes that she, this Jews are not yet safe, even though Haman, their enemy, has been put to death. And so in verse 3, then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, 
wept and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman the Agagite and his plot which he had devised against the Jews. And the king extended the golden scepter to Esther. This is the second time that's happened. So Esther arose and stood before the king. And then she said, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor before him, and the matter seems proper to the king, and I am pleasing in his sight, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to to destroy the Jews which are in the king's province. And how can I endure to see the calamity which shall befall my people? And how shall I endure to see the destruction of my own kindred? So King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther, and him they have hanged on the hands against the Jews. Now verse 8. Now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name, and seal it with the king's signet ring for a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. Now, I haven't uh, made mention of this before, but this is one of the distinguishing features of the Medo-Persian Empire. When they wrote a law, it was impossible for that law to be rescinded or revoked in any way. And so when Esther comes to the king and says in verse 5, I want you to write a law to rescind the existing law, that says something about Esther. She would have known the, 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 the regime that she is living under. She would have known this is one of the most distinctive features in Persian culture. Laws cannot be transcended. And so, again, I, I, I don't want to stand before Mordecai and Esther in heaven one day and have to apologize to either one of them. But when I read this and I see what is blatantly obvious to all who understand the history of the, of the Persians, laws could not be changed. It's as though this woman is saying, you're the king, you can do anything that you want to do. And she's not recognizing that even the king is under the law. And so she's assuming a corruption that isn't there. And here this pagan king is more honoring and submissive to the law than she presumably is. Now again, I'm not saying this is a bad person. But, why, but maybe because she's lived in, a, in basically a corrupt, ungodly society where she's seen many people doing whatever they want, maybe she's just assuming that the king can do whatever he wants. But the law is clear. Even the king cannot change the law. She should have known this. I believe she did know it. I, I think that even as we live today where so many Christians think that, that laws are optional, and that, and that whatever the law is, it can be ignored or it can be changed. It is not binding and it is not absolute. This is a pagan culture that says law is absolute. I think at least one application here is pretty clear. The word of God, the law of God, is if it can be more absolute, and nothing you can't be more absolute, but just for emphasis, it is even more absolute than the law of the Persians. It cannot be revoked. And, and so even Jesus, when he came to this earth and walked on this earth as a man, 
He cannot ignore the law, sidestep it, change it. And so Jesus will say in the Sermon on the Mount, it has to be fulfilled. It cannot be abolished. And we need to understand that. Jesus never broke the law. He fulfilled the law. Had he broken any of the laws, as you've heard me say before, particularly the law concerning the Sabbath, which many times he was accused of transgressing it, if that were indeed the case, that he had violated the Sabbath, when it came to his crucifixion, the Jews could have condemned him for violating the Sabbath because that is the penalty under the Mosaic law. Sabbath breakers were killed. And Jesus, they found no ground for condemning him, including breaking the Sabbath because he didn't break it. He broke their traditions, but he never violated the law of God. He came to fulfill it. He could not break it and remain without sin. He would have been a transgressor of the law. God has has said there is a law concerning mankind. And that law is simply that sin deserves death. And there is nothing that can change that law. Sinners deserve to die for their sin. I think that sometimes much of humanity doesn't really believe that. And they think that we can just someday stand before God and God can say, well, I just love you so much, we're just going going to ignore that law. It can't happen. That law is, is something that cannot change, and it must be fulfilled. And it has been met and fulfilled in the death of Jesus Christ for humanity. So God didn't set it aside. He met the obligation of the law by having Christ die as a sinless substitute for the sinner. And we see that same pattern being played out here in the book of Esther. So the king is going, I can't change the law, but another law can be written so that you don't have to be subject to the first law. And so that's the second law that's going to be written. And a law goes out under the hand of Mordecai that, it, that any Jew on the day that he's attacked, which will be on March 7th coming up in, in eight months, any Jew when attacked can defend himself. And so that's where the rest of chapter 8 and 9 goes. The king didn't set aside the law. He allowed another law to be met, to be made. And, and God has done virtually the same thing with us in Christ. He has said that the penalty of sin is death. He has not annulled that law, but he has given the law of Christ where another has came and given himself for us. And we can stand either facing the law of death or the law of Christ. And so we have an opportunity to not have the law of death applied to us if we stand by faith in Christ who gave himself for us. So in verse 9, the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which is the month Stephen. And they were written um, on the 23rd day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded the Jews, and then it goes out. So in verse 11, we come to what the law said. And then the king granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them including children and women, and to plunder their spoil. 
So the law goes out. Whereas the Jews were going to be annihilated, now the Jews have the right to self-defense. They can assemble for the purpose of taking up arms and defending themselves against any person who would attack them. And they even have the right to plunder the spoil of their enemy. And then as we continue to read, we're told in verse 16, And the Jews, for for the Jews there was light and gladness and joy and honor, and in each and every province and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews, for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. Even the unbelievers see something is at play here that's bigger than men. That these people who are about to be annihilated are now being honored and that a Jew has been elevated to the highest place in the land underneath the king. And many people decided, I want to be a Jew. Isn't that amazing? Now... This is the only place in the Old Testament where Gentiles are said to have become Jews. There are other places that talk about Gentiles becoming worshipers of the God of Israel. But there is no place anywhere in the Old Testament that says a Gentile became a Jew. So Naaman, the leper, for example, became a worshiper of the God of Israel, but he went back to Syria. He did not become a Jew. And we have many other cases like that. So the point that I would want to make here, just for the sake of clarity, is again, there's, there's, there's sometimes today a lot of confusion about um, what happens when a Gentile, I think most of us in this room, when we place your faith in Christ, do you become a Jew spiritually? And there are many that would say that you do. And they back that up in, in part on a verse like this. There is nothing in the Bible that says that a Gentile becomes a Jew spiritually. It says that we become circumcised of heart. All of Abraham's sons were circumcised. All of his servants, male servants, were circumcised. They didn't all become Jews. And so just because a man was circumcised as an indication of his relation to Abraham didn't make him a Jew. Abraham had eight sons. He had one by Sarah. He had one by Hagar. And he had six by his next wife, Keturah. Only through, through his, his son with Sarah did there eventually, two generations later, did the, na- did the nation of Israel come into being, or at least the be- began to be called Israel when Jacob's name was changed by God to Israel? And so all the rest of the sons were not Israelites, but they were circumcised because of their relationship with Abraham. My point is that when we stand before God in heaven, there is not going to be simply Jews. We're told that people from every tribe and every nation of the earth are going to be there giving praise to God. God is bringing out a people for himself among all the tribes and all the nations of the world. God is not interested in making everything monolithic. 
Just as there's not going to be only white people in heaven, there's not going to be only Jews in heaven. There is nothing wrong with the various races. They don't have to be redeemed into one people, one race. And there is nothing wrong with the various nations. God has created the nations, and he has created them to his glory. So this is a point to be clear on because God has a distinct plan for the Jewish people. And we are not those people. God has a distinct plan for his church as well. And we are the bride of Christ. But we are not the Israel of God. Two different peoples. Two different plans. And so this is just the historical narrative where, again, a statement is being made about what happened with no comment on whether it should have happened or not. And so that's why when we read our Bibles, especially historical narrative in the Old Testament, we need to read it with, with not reading into the Scripture, making it say something that it's not saying. And there's nothing here in this verse that says this should have happened. It's simply saying it did happen. What God wanted was not for Gentiles to become Jews, because you can be a Jew and not be saved. God wanted Gentiles to become saved, to put their faith in the God of Israel that they might be saved because many of the Jews were not saved. And so that's, this is not a statement of people coming to faith. This is a statement of people coming to Jews, to become Jews. Okay, so, so we keep reading chapter 9. Now in the 12th month, that is the month Adar, which for us is March On the 13th day, which would have been March 7th, when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary. Again, God did this. It doesn't say God did it, but we know that it was the Lord who turned it and reversed it. So if the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them, The Jews assembled in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand before them. Now, this is an interesting turn of phrase here. They they assembled, what does it say? To lay hands on those who sought to harm them. And if that doesn't seem taking the offensive, the next verse, the next phrase is clearly taking the offensive. This is a bit problematic. And no one could stand before them. So, a cross-reference here. If we go back to the book of Joshua, where this phrase is is used, um, where might I find it in my notes? Sorry. Joshua 10.8. In Joshua chapter 10, verse 8, is, I think, the first time that this phrase is used. And it is... And it is used as an offensive term, not defensive. So in Joshua 10, verse 8, it says, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. Joshua went into the land to conquer the land. And God is saying, As you go in as a conqueror, they shall not stand before you. Joshua was taking the offensive against these people. So this, it would seem that in this decree that has been issued by, by the king Xerxes, Ahasuerus, that, that they had the right to defend themselves, that included the right to take the first action against those who were coming at them. And so in other words, 
And, and rules of combat today, crazy times that we're living in, we, there are rules of engagement. Our soldiers are sometimes, I've heard told, you cannot fire until first you are fired at. And so you've got a guy coming at you with a weapon. And you can't shoot him until first he shoots at you. And so that is just idiocy. And so you, he's got the weapon. He's the aggressor. He's coming at you. Do you really have to wait for him to pull the trigger? And so that's what it seems to be that these Jews have been given the right to not have to wait until they are actually physically assaulted. If they are being attacked, then you don't have to wait until he shoots you. They didn't have guns back then, bludgeoned you, whatever it was. You could go ahead and take the first hit. That's what small men learn to do. Okay? Little guys, and, and you know, you, you know, if a big guy comes after you, it's best to get the hit in first. You know he's going to hit you, hit him first. It may be the only hit you get. And so these, these Jewish people not only were just waiting passively to be attacked, but when the attackers came, they took it to them. That seems to be what's being said. And in taking it to them, there's no indication that any of the Jewish people lost their lives. Now, maybe some did, and it's just not being recorded, but I think many times when the Jewish people went into battles, they had 100% victory with no loss whatsoever on their side. And this may have been one of those days. Now, how many were killed? We're told in verse 6, it says, And in Susa, the capital, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, including in that 500 the ten sons of Haman. And then in verse, um, in verse 16, it says, Now the rest of the Jews who are in the king's provinces assembled to defend their lives and rid themselves of their enemies and kill 75,000 of those who hated them. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. And then in verse 15, And the Jews who were in Susa assembled also on the 14th day, so the next day, on the month Adar, and they killed 300 more men in Susa. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. So on the first day, March 7th, 500 men die in Susa. 75,000 die in the rest of the king's provinces. On the next day, because Esther went to the king and said, can we do this one more day just here in the city? And the king said, sure, why not? And so they had one more day of killing their enemies and another 300 died the next day. So we have over 75,000. Five, over uh, 75,800 men who were killed. Now, on the grand scheme of things, with the entire nation of the Medo-Persian Empire, that wasn't a whole lot of people. But on the other hand, why did any die? I mean, you think about this. When two decrees have gone out and the second decree has given the Jewish people the right to defend themselves and clearly God's hand is on these people so much that even the pagan um, rulers in the various provinces are assisting the Jews so that they can defend themselves. So the the rulers-to-be all across the empire understood that these Jewish people are, are, are being favored by God and so they are assisting them to defend themselves. Why would anybody fight them? It is, it is, again, just blind, 
rage. It is insanity. It is hostility. It is a hatred that knows no rationale. That's just the nature of anti-Semitism in this world. It's nothing new. These people just had nothing but pure, undefiled hatred for the people of God. And it is insane. You know, I, I have, I've said this before, but it stands out to me on, on, in talking about things like this. Um, when a Christian is hated in this world, our first instinct often is to try to reason with the person. And it should happen. We should try to reason with them. But we shouldn't be so naive as to think that this is just a matter of understanding each other. There is much more at play here than that. There is a demonic hatred against the people of God. And it will not be reasoned with. Yes, we should try, because there are those individuals that would respond. But there are also those under individuals who are just so blindly obsessed with their hatred, and they can't even explain it. It makes no sense. And it will not be reasoned with. That's one of the reasons we have wars not all war is evil. Sometimes there are people who simply will not respond to anything else. And there has to be war. If you're from a pacifist country, you have a real hard time with that statement. But we see here God is telling, is working through a pagan king to give his people the right to defend themselves even in war. I don't see any inconsistency with the nature of God, personally, with that. I am not saying all war is right, and I'm not saying all self-defense is right. But I am saying it is not contradictory to the nature of God to defend yourself and even for a nation to go to war against evil that will not be reasoned with. It is the obligation of nations to defend themselves. And sometimes it is the obligation of individuals to defend themselves. I sometimes talk to students that come from a pacifist country and, they, and, and, and they'll say to me, well, it's, just, it's wrong to, to pick up a gun and, and, and to defend your home. You should never do that. And I go, okay, well, let's just think about that. Would you pick up the phone and call 911? Well, yeah. So you're going to ask someone else to defend you to risk their life in defending you, but you won't risk your life to defend your own family. What is wrong with that picture? I don't see it. And so, and, and so we see these instances, I believe, throughout Scripture where God is endorsing the right of self-defense. And it's not defending so as to gain mastery over other people. It is not self-defense in order to enrich myself. They are not touching the spoil of their enemies. Even lawsuits come into play with this. And we understand the scripture says that one Christian is not to sue another. But are we forbidden by scripture to use the courts to sue in order to stop evil from being done? I don't see us being forbidden from that personally in scripture. If I can use the police force to stop evil from being done, why can't I use the courts, which are also established by the government, to stop evil from being done? But I can't use the courts to enrich myself. And people are doing that all the time. 
They, they make, there's a whole industry of just filing lawsuits so that you can, trivial, trivial things so that you can make yourself rich at somebody else's expense. That is wrong. But if there is a company or if there is an individual who is evil in their intent and you have the power to stop it and do nothing, that too is wrong. And so I think personally that it is in the nature of God that when you have the power to stop evil, God has given you that power in order to stop evil. That's why it's there, to stand up. This is why there's so much in Scripture, I believe, about defending the widow and defending the orphan, even at the risk of our own lives. This is what the righteous do. They don't just stand by and let the, and let the helpless be assaulted. But they stand, say something, do something, and don't just stand by passively. In response to the victory that God gives, the Jewish people institute a new feast. It's called the Feast of Purim. It is still celebrated today. In verse 20, it says, Then Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month Adar, March 8th, and the fifth, and the, I'm sorry, March seventh, and the fifteenth day of the same month, March eighth, because of these of those days, the Jews rid themselves of their enemies, and it was a month which was turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into holiday, that they might make them make these make them days of feasting and rejoicing, and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Thus, the Jews undertook what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. And so they have a, a new feast, the Feast of Purim. The lesson there, it is always good to remember and to celebrate the faithfulness of God. Now I would make another application here. We, as believers, read this story and rightly would come to the conclusion, God has done these things. God turned things around. A Jew, a people that were marked for extermination, God turned it around, elevated it, elevated these very people, and protected these people. God did it. But there is very little that God does that he doesn't use human agency. We know from Romans 10, for example, when it comes to people coming to know Jesus, he always uses human agency. And so God does it. How does a person come to faith in Christ? God does it. It is 100% the work of God. But how does God do it? He uses people. It is still God's work, but he uses people to accomplish what he does. God protected these Jewish people. But he used their own fighting in order to protect them. But they are having a feast not acknowledging their ability, but acknowledging God's ability. There's no contradiction here. But theologians today get in this big debate between monergism and synergism. Monergism says it is one, salvation is 100% the activity of God. Amen. Synergism says 
that man cooperates with God. And so there the debate becomes, if we in any way cooperate with God, then we can take credit for our own salvation because we participated in it. And I'm going, it wears me out thinking about it. It is just so much talk about stuff that, in essence, there's no disagreement here. God does it. Salvation is 100% the work of God. But God uses means to accomplish his ends. And one of the means that he uses is people. One of the things that helps me think through this, I look again going back to Abraham. Abraham had a child, Ishmael, with Hagar. And God says that child was a product of the flesh. Abraham had a child through Sarah, and that child, God said, was God's doing, a miracle child. Now, monergism, synergism. Keeping that debate for a second here, we would say the child born through Sarah was monergism, 100% the activity of God, whereas the child born through Hagar was synergistic. Abraham was involved. It was a product of the flesh, and that's why that child was not acceptable as the promised child. That's true, except there's a problem. In the child born to Sarah, Abraham was involved, was he not? He was involved with Sarah in the same way he was involved with Hagar. It was the same involvement. But God looks at the product of the involvement and he says one child is of the flesh and one child is of God. So the problem here is not the agency. It's that in the first case with Hagar, God, Abraham was not acting in dependence upon God. He was seeking to assist God. And in the second instance with his wife Sarah, He was acting in faith and dependence upon God. That is the only difference. But in both cases, a child was born, and we know that no child can come into this world except what? God does it. So even Ishmael was, was, God created that child. But Ishmael, God was a product of Abraham's flesh. And, and And the child was, Sarah was not a product of Abraham's flesh. Now, go figure that all out. But we know that God says that the one child is 100% my activity while using a man. That's like our salvation. It is 100% the activity of God. But God uses people for you to even hear about Christ. And he wants you to put your faith in Christ. And it's still the activity of God. And so when you are saved, you don't say, look what I have done. We all say, look what God did. And yet God used a person. And God had you put your faith in Christ. And it is still 100% to the glory of God. God saves. Hudson Taylor's ship was going down on that first journey to China. He had a life jacket with him. His mother gave him because ships sank a lot in those days. And so she sent him off to China with a life jacket. And sure enough, the ship almost began to sink. And so he he put on his life jacket. And his first thought was, I'm not trusting God. I need to just trust God. 
So he gave his life jacket away. And then he started looking for something else that would float. And then it came to him. God uses means to accomplish his ends. And our trust is not in the means. Our trust is in God. And so this is the thing as Christians. You know, we, when, it, when, when whatever our circumstances are in life, is it not faith to go to a doctor? Could be. But it could be you are trusting God when you go to a doctor. Because God uses means to accomplish his ends. We pray for healing and we go to a doctor. We pray for an income to support our family and we go out and look for a job. And it goes on and on. Because we know the income to support our family comes from God. Healing comes from God. But God uses means to accomplish his ends. And so this is where faith is is born out in our lives. And we recognize there's a tension here where I don't just sit back in passivity. I am actively trusting God, but God uses means to accomplish his ends. and And my faith is not in the means. So right now, torchbearers, there are a number of the schools that are very low in enrollment. So low that we can't meet our ends. And so what do we do? And so again, the first thing to do is start looking for something that will hold us up, like Hudson Taylor did. And so I've had an occasion this week to be reminded and and to write letters to some of the other Torchbearer directors and, and just to encourage them, as I've been seeking to encourage myself in the Lord, our trust is not in student numbers. Our trust is not in bank accounts. Our trust is not in donors. Our trust is in God. Does God use student numbers, bank accounts, and donors? Yes. But that's not our trust. Our trust is in Him. And maybe God wants to surprise us and do something He hasn't done before. But it'll probably be through some means. I don't think that I'm going to walk back to His hill this summer and that I'm going to, there's going to be a cloud and it's going to drop $100 bills from the sky. He could do that. But it's not likely. God uses means to accomplish his purposes. And it is good for us to celebrate God and what he has done. To remember those things. It's one of the things I appreciate about this little book of Esther. Is that we are seeing again the providential hand of God through ordinary circumstances of life. When birthdays come up. We can either bemoan how old we're getting and decrepit and senile and all the rest of it, or we can use those birthdays as an opportunity to think back on the faithfulness of God. You may just be 18, 19 years old. You have 18 and 19 years of the faithfulness of God. If you're 70, 80, you've got that many years of the faithfulness of God. Think back on it. Celebrate it. It pleases God when God's people purpose to remember what God has done. We don't do it enough. The end of the, of the letter, the last um, of the book, chapter 10, is about God elevating Mordecai. And Mordecai the Jew, verse 3, second only to King Ahasuerus, 
and great among the Jews and in favor with the multitude of his kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. It's great. God did it. Now, I just want to conclude in the couple minutes we have left with just a, a, just a running list of, of um, lessons, highlights from this book. Number one, God remains faithful to his people and his promises in spite of his adversaries and his people's unfaithfulness. This is not a book that is extolling the faithfulness of Mordecai and Esther. This is a book that is extolling the faithfulness of God. We should be encouraged through this book. This is one of those books that shows us that even when people are not living 100% as they should, God's people, and they're living in a hostile society where God's people are compromising with that society, God remains faithful. I think that's one of the clear lessons here in this book. Good people are compromising with the society around them, and God is remaining faithful. There is no mention of God's name in this book, as I've said before. But what I haven't told you, saving the best for the last, is that God's name is actually hidden in acrostic form in four places in this little book. Those commentaries that I've read have told me that three or four different ones that I've read said that they are not aware of God's name being in acrostic form in anywhere else in the Bible. And yet, in the one book of the Bible that does not mention his name explicitly, four times, it's hidden in acrostic form. Now, that's interesting. For that to happen once is almost mathematically impossible. To happen four times in one ten-chapter book where God's name is not clearly written even once, it can't be a mistake. Now, of those four times, the first is in Esther one twenty and then Esther 5.4, and then 5.13, and then 7.7. Get this. Now, what we have are four Hebrew words in each of these four sentences where either the first letter is the letter for Yahweh, Y-W-H-Y. So use four letters, four words, first letter Y, second word, first letter W, third letter on down like that, Y-W-H-Y. Why? Yahweh. Okay? And so the first two times, Yahweh is written in, um, um, it, it's in the initial letters, the front letters. In the second two instances, it's in the last letters of those four consecutive words. So no words are being bypassed over, four words connected with each other. First two times, it's the front four letters. Next two times, it's the last letter of each of those four words. But then there's more inter- things interesting here. When the first time, Esther 1.20, that name of Yahweh is in reverse order. It's spelled backwards. And the person speaking the name of Yahweh, doesn't know it, is a Gentile. The second time it takes place, Esther is speaking, and it's written in the correct order. The next time, the third time it's being, that, it's, that, it's, that it's written, it's written in the reverse order again, and it's again a Gentile who's talking. And then in the last time, it's written in the forward way again, and once again, it's a Jew talking. So both times that a Gentile is unknowingly speaking the name of God in acrostic form, it's reversed. 
And both times that a Jew is unknowingly speaking the name of God, it's in the forward way. So again, it, this is so intricate. How can that? I think this is again an indication of the providence of God. How could this be chance? There are things like this all around us every day. And I'm not into numerology and all that business whatsoever. That is just nonsense in my mind. That is not what this is. And so, but when things like this are here, where they're so intricate, it's like, how can you look at a single cell amoeba and see that much complexity and come to the conclusion it is by chance? It takes more faith to believe that, it came, that, it's, that it's a product of chance than to believe that it's a product of design. And I don't, you know, when I see this, I go, how can it not be God? That's the point of looking for the providence of God. When we see things that defy clear explanation, it's because God is behind it. And we are to acknowledge it and to honor him for what he's doing. God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect will. He doesn't have to use people, but he typically does, especially in salvation. He is sovereign over all the choices that people make. He works all things together for good. This book indicates that we will reap what we've sown. This book speaks about casting lots, which was a form of divination. Divination is hated by God, but even that God is sovereign over. God is not opposed to all war or all self-defense. He will prevent, he will pre- prevent Israel from being exterminated. God never meant for Gentiles to become Jews. Self-defense is for the preservation of life, not for personal gain. And it is good to remember the faithfulness of God. Those in power should speak words of peace and truth, not fears and lie. There's a reference here that I skipped over. It says that they spoke, that when Mordecai came into power, he spoke peace and truth. And the name of God may be removed, it may be forgotten, it may be abandoned. But God's presence and activity remain. And I would close today with just reading another passage of Scripture from Romans 8, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Think of the Jewish people where they have had the hatred of Satan and the nations against them for over 3,000 years. But they're still here. If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray.